The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we continue to give you thanks and to praise your holy name for how you have preserved your church in this present evil age. We thank you, O Father, that you have raised up many and that you have sent out many laborers into the harvest. And we will hear even this morning about those who were faithful seeking to preserve the truth of your word from error. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray, Father, that you would give us encouragement, wisdom, and direction from the examples of our forefathers and mothers as we seek to run our race with faithfulness, being surrounded as we are with the great cloud of witnesses, which we have even been considering a small portion of in this study. We pray it, O Lord, in the strong and matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this morning we are going to be really concluding our study. Um, and that means that we're going to be wrapping up some, some loose ends, in a sense. Uh, the, the basic focus of this morning is going to be somewhat uh, divided uh, we're first going to speak for just a little bit about the formation of the OPC in the southeast. And we've talked a little bit about that before, but I, I do want to make a little bit of, or at least a few comments, about the formation of the Presbytery of the southeast, which we uh, belong to, which is not very old, and in, uh, seemingly, in God's providence, may soon be dividing itself, which would be um, a good thing in a lot of ways. It's, it's representative of the fact that we're growing, and that's a, that's a blessing. Uh, but we'll talk about that, and then we'll also talk about the splintering that has happened in the mainline Presbyterian Church. So that's really the title of the lesson, and we're going to spend a lot of time focused on that. Uh, the mainline has continued to divide um, since the churches that we've really focused on have left. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about the OPC, obviously, splitting in the 1930s. We've also spent a good amount of time considering uh, the PCA, uh, splitting later in the 1970s, and uh, that's not the last of it. <laughs> the church has split, the mainline church that is, has split twice more since then, once in the 1980s and then again in the 2000s. And we'll talk for just a moment about those divisions and what calls them. So, so that's going to be the, the basic outline of what we're going to talk about. Like I said, we're kind of throwing some things in there together to try to wrap it up. And then next week we're going to have a time of reflection and, and a time where we can uh, maybe try to learn some lessons from what we've seen in Presbyterian church history uh, in this country. So bring your, uh, bring your questions and bring your comments. Be careful the comments you bring, but bring your comments nonetheless. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the PSE, the Presbyterian Southeast of the OPC. So the churches that exist within the boundaries of our presbytery historically have been in two presbyteries. First, the Presbytery of the South, uh, which covered basically from the state of Florida all the way up, uh, finding its northern boundary, I believe, hmm, Tim, South Carolina or Georgia, one of those two, I, I believe probably South Carolina was the boundary for the Presbytery of the South. And then, but that might not be correct, so um, you don't know, Okay. And then the, the Presbyterian of the Mid-Atlantic, which I'm more confident about, uh, ran from basically Maryland uh, all the way through North Carolina. And that was the Presbyterian which our geographical region used to belong. Uh, so, for instance, Pilgrim Presbyterian Church, down the road, our brothers and sisters there, they were at one time a member church of the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic. And we'll talk in just a second about how they 
uh, got their origin, as well as uh, um, uh, Matthew's OPC, uh, which was uh, a plant in some ways from Pilgrim in Charlotte, which are two of the, the older churches and best churches in North Carolina uh, that are members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So the oldest churches that do exist within our presbytery uh, date from really the 1960s and 70s. That's where they have their origin. Now, that might be surprising to some of you. I don't know. I think we've probably, you could have put that together from some of the things we've discussed already. Uh, but many, many churches that are in the OPC in the South are, are either church plants, I think the majority would be church plants, or churches that came from other denominations for one reason or another. So the vast majority of the churches that exist within our presbytery are, are fairly recent churches, dating, like I said, from the 60s and 70s, the oldest, at the oldest. Um, uh, Matthew's OPC we already mentioned. Let's, let's talk for a moment about Pilgrim. There's an interesting connection uh, between Pilgrim and the first Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the South. We talked about that church being in Georgia. Uh, actually, uh, the third pastor of that work in Georgia was a man by the name of Cromwell Roskamp. Does anybody know him? I'm thinking that someone does because you just you, you said it before I could say it. Okay, so a few people have, have uh, interacted or know, know of him. Uh, he was the pastor of that very first Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the South, excluding Florida, because Florida's not really in the South. Um, sorry. Um, that's not news to anybody, I would imagine. Uh, but, uh, so, he, he was the first, uh, or the, the, the minister of that first church there, uh, after, I think, the first two ministers they had. They, they went through ministers quickly, in these days. Uh, this is something that I've observed. Maybe I should save this for next week. But OP churches changed ministers a lot uh, in, in this period. So uh, it's not uncommon to see churches changing ministers every year, every two, three years. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the reason for that was, but it's just something I've noticed as I've been researching some of these uh, congregations. Um, I think it's, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing that we have longer ministries now. That's a, that's a blessing, I think. Um, so, uh, Mr. Mr. Roskamp uh, was called then here uh, to Raleigh to begin the work of pastoring Pilgrim in uh, 1968. Uh, Pilgrim was started, actually, because a man who was a minister who was working with the Committee on Home Missions of the OPC, seeking to plant churches in the southern United States, was just placing ads, apparently, in newspapers, uh, so he was just going, like he went to Raleigh, placed an ad in the newspaper. He, he went to Atlanta, he placed an ad in the newspaper and just said, hey, if you're interested in starting an Orthodox Presbyterian church, we want to plant OP churches around the country, particularly we want to plant them in the South. So, you know, let us know. And, and someone responded uh, to that, that newspaper article, and from that, uh, a small group formed, and uh, eventually they were able to call uh, this man Reverend uh, Ross Camp. And I'm not exactly sure how long he was at Pilgrim. I know it was for quite a while. And I also know that he ministered there uh, as a bivocational pastor for a number of years. So he, it looks like he was really quite sacrificial in the work he did there. So. Wow, okay. Okay, so the 90s, so the early 90s. So he was there from the 60s through to the early 90s at least. Okay, yeah, so, so there you go a man who labored a long time to establish an OP work uh, in this area. So uh, that, that's Pilgrim. Um, we could 
say more about that. I believe they were actually, and I would have to double check on this again, but I believe they were actually originally in a church in the Presbytery of Philadelphia. But I'm not exactly sure about that, so I'm not going to... I'll just throw that out there and, and let myself be proved wrong or, or right later. Um, but as, aside from Pilgrim, which obviously is, is closest to us, uh, there's also Matthew's OPC. Matthew started as a Bible study uh, under a ruling elder who had come down from Pennsylvania. He had ro- relocated to Charlotte from uh, Swickley, Pennsylvania, and the OP church that was there. And he began a small group in that area, and then they came under the oversight later of First OPC Raleigh, which later changed its name to Pilgrim. And uh, so, in a sense, uh, Matthews is a church plant out of the OP church at uh, Pilgrim. So, although in many ways it just kind of worked that way, there was a separate core group down there. It wasn't like a mother-daughter, but they were involved in that work as well. So those are two of the earliest churches that we have in our presbytery, and they uh, they're right here, really, uh, in, our, in our area. Aside from that, the, the uh, church that was in Georgia that we spoke about before, uh, that church did end up leaving and going into the PCA. And that was a common thing. There was a number of OP churches, particularly in eastern Tennessee, uh, in the early days of the PCA, uh, that instead of staying in the OPC, uh, decided to make the move into the PCA. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, these were churches that were members of the Presbytery of Ohio or something like that, and they're, they're in Tennessee. You know, that's a, that's a long way to be uh, driving up to Cincinnati or wherever they happen to be going to, to meet for Presbytery. Instead, uh, they just decided, well, it makes sense if we have Reformed brothers and sisters right down the road that we go ahead and, and affiliate with them. I mean, that's, that's reasonable. You can understand why they made those moves. That's the same that took place uh, in Georgia with a few churches, but a number of them uh, continued to stay in the OPC. Redeemer Atlanta, which is a church that many of us are familiar with, started in 1966, and that, that church continues in the OPC, even after the formation of the PCA, as well as some that were in Virginia, uh, another church that was in our Presbytery, Garth Mill, and Grace, and Lynchburg. All of these churches date from before the founding of the PCA and continued into the OPC for one reason or another, sticking with the OPC. So, that's just a little bit. The only reason we want to really talk about this is because we want to bring it home. <laughs> you know, we want, to, we want to talk about things that happened out over here that are, you know, historical things, uh, things that are influential not only on a local level but on a national level. But we also want to talk about the work of the Lord that he's doing close to us through our own body. And that's why we want to talk, as we already have, for just a moment about some of these congregations before we close out our study and some of the work that the Lord has done here. Our presbytery was formed. Does anybody know the year our presbytery was formed? Some of you were around for this, I'm sure. So. It was formed in 2000, right? Very, very recent. It, it was formed on January 1st of the year 2000. And it was formed then with seven churches uh, and three mission works on the presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic and four churches and four mission works on the presbytery of the South. Uh, thus, they had, uh, they had 18 churches at that time. And today we have uh, about 32 congregations and mission works uh, together. So we've grown modestly, maybe not as much as we would have liked to have seen, but uh, there's been churches that have come, there's been churches that have gone. Uh, But in God's providence, he has blessed us with slow and steady growth. And the Presbytery has planted uh, many churches, and um, some of those have not survived. But God has still been good to us to to prosper the work that we've, we've been doing here. 
And um, as we kind of transition away from this, let me just say that, Lord willing, in another 20 years, uh, we'll see 10, 15, 20, 30 more churches planted in the bounds of this presbytery. Whether or not it's this presbytery or not, we pray that the Lord would do even more than he's done thus far, and that he would use us, he would stir us up, even as we see this modest growth, that we would be encouraged uh, to go forth with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be aggressive in evangelism and in church planning and seek to establish more lampstands for the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this region. Because I can talk to you about how there are many PCA churches, there are many ARP churches within the bounds of our presbytery, and we give, <laughs> we give glory to the Lord for that fact. That is a blessing. That's a good thing. We don't want to see those churches die. We don't want to see those churches go away. We want to see them prosper. We want to see them plant more churches too. But there are also places within the bounds of our presbytery, for instance, eastern North Carolina, where you can drive for an hour and a half and not find a faithful Reformed church in every direction. So we do still have work to be done, or there is still work to be done, and, and I wish... If anything else, I'm going to stop ranting in a second here, but I do want to put this on your mind that we do need to be focused close to home on the sad reality that there are many towns within driving distance of us that do not have faithful Reformed churches of any denomination. That's something to consider. It's something to let weigh on our hearts and our minds, and it's something to pray about. Anyway, all right. I'll end my my uh, mini-sermonette here on uh, the importance of church planning in this area. So we do, we do give glory to the Lord for what he has done, even if it is modest in our eyes within the bounds of our presbytery. So moving away from uh, kind of this very uh, small, kind of uh, close-in shot that we just had talking about American Presbyterianism, let's go back to discuss the splintering of the mainline Presbyterian church. Everybody knows, I think, by now that when I'm talking about the mainline Presbyterian Church, I'm talking about that church which is in existence now under the name PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Um, this takes us back uh, to the early 80s, uh, as we begin to discuss this, before the merger takes place that we've discussed whenever we discuss the origins of the PCA, between the United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the UPCUSA, it's a wonderful acronym they have there, um, and the PCUS, the Old Southern Church. So, as we saw already, in 1971, there was that General Assembly which caused the men who started the PCA to say, hey, we can't stay. And we talked about some of the things that were going on at that point. We talked about the fact that, uh, you know, the General Assembly was establishing its own fund to pay for uh, underprivileged women to have abortions on the church's dime, right? We, we talked about the fact that things like this have been taking place in the Southern Presbyterian Church at this point for a number of years, but really it's coming to a head in 1971, and the conservatives realize uh, we don't think we can turn this thing around. And so many of them leave, and they form the PCA, 1973. But many stayed, and, and this is something that I don't think we are as conscious of because many of us don't. Um, have as close a ties to churches like the Evangelical Presbyterian Church as we do uh, to the PCA. Uh, but many conservatives did stay for a few years after that took place. Uh, some of them we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, now. We're also going to talk about the fact that in the North, there were still conservative Presbyterians in the mainline church, in the UPC USA. 
And a number of these men began to, to realize basically what the men in the South had already realized, which is that there's no way to fix the problems we have in the church at this point. And they, they make a decision simultaneously with churches in the South to leave these two denominations and form another continuing uh, Presbyterian denomination that is slightly less conservative uh, than the PCA. And we'll talk about the ways in which that's the case in just a second. But I do want to draw your attention to one northern minister and one southern minister here because they illustrate much of what's taking place at this time. In the north, I want us to talk for just a moment about a minister by the name of Bart Hess. Uh, Bart Hess was a minister in the Detroit area. He had ministered in Chicago and in, in Detroit. Uh, he, he was a man who had been really, he had really had a, a blessed ministry. The Lord had grown the churches that he had been pastor of, and he had done a lot in the way of church planning, in the way of evangelism. He was a notable man in, in his presbytery around the UPC USA. Uh, but he was a man who began to become increasingly concerned about the liberalizing state of the northern church. Now, you might say the northern church had been liberalizing for quite some time. And as good Orthodox Presbyterians, we would say, yeah, it had been. It had been liberalizing for a really long time. We talked about the fact that we had men denying the, the virgin birth of Christ. We had men all over the place denying the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. This is, this is really standard fare at this point. So you might wonder what kind of things drove men like Bart Hess to finally leave. Well, there was a few things. The first thing was the trial of a lady named Angela Davis. Does anybody know that name? Okay, so Mrs. Davis was a Black Panther. She was uh, a communist. She was a, uh, a social justice warrior in the, in the language of our, our own culture today. And she was uh, put up on, uh, well, she was charged with a number of crimes uh, because of her participation in really what were domestic terrorist activities. And the UPC USA decided that it would be in their best interest to contribute to her defense. And so they were giving money to try to get this lady off the hook for the crime she had committed. Uh, by the way, we're a long way past the spirituality of the church at this point when the church is paying for people to, to fight their battles in court because of their social and political agendas. Uh, but this was one instance where conservatives were really wringing their hands and they were saying, hey, you know, what in the world are we doing? What are we doing here? We're, we're openly promoting communism and domestic terrorism. Uh, but other things that were happening, uh, in the early 1970s, the GA, for the first time, began to deal with the issue of homosexuality. Now, who in here would have suspected that it would have been that early? I was actually surprised by that, because the PCUSA didn't eventually come to a position of fully affirming homosexuality until the 2000s. But even in the 1970s, the early 1970s, they are getting petitioned by presbyteries to study the issue and to basically overthrow the law of the church, which was at that point to uphold the biblical understanding of marriage. The 1970s, this is happening. So this debate came to the GA. The GA swatted it down at this point, but the conservative ministers that were there, they realized something. They realized that that debate wasn't going away. And they realized that what we would call now the LGBTQ you know, plus a whatever lobby was gaining a foothold in the church and it was beginning to gather to itself political power. So these are things that were happening. And then really the straw that, that broke the camel's back were two things that happened. The first was 
1979, a minister in the D.C. area in the Northern Church openly and publicly rejected the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. His statement, which I found to be quite amazing, was, Jesus isn't God. God is God. Okay? It doesn't appear to be familiar with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, any... Anyway, uh, so... His presbytery brings him up on charges. He appeals to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly says, no, he's okay. So the General Assembly says, now you can minister in the Northern Presbyterian Church, and you do not have to believe that Jesus is God. Okay? That was one thing. The next thing was something called Overture L, which was passed in the Northern Church, and that prohibited churches and presbyteries from barring women and minorities, but we're not, obviously, we don't have an issue with minorities holding church office. But the thing that was a problem was that it prohibited churches and presbyteries from barring women from holding any office in the church. Now, the conservatives who had stayed up to this point basically have mixed opinions about the issue of women's ordination, and we'll see that as the church develops out of this, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But what they did not believe was right was for someone who believed that the Scripture taught that women should not be ruling elders, deacons, ministers, what have you. They didn't believe it was right that that person ought to be forced to take a certain position on the issue. And so this combination of factors leads men like Bart Hess, he being one of the leaders here, one of the big leaders here, to form an organization called Presbyterians United for Biblical Concerns, I think if there's one thing we can learn from Presbyterian church history, when you start having these organizations started within a denomination, that's a bad sign. But, um, but they did. They, they felt it necessary to form basically a, a political organization within the church to fight for the rights of conservative ministers. And this organization would then become instrumental in the founding of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, which will start in just uh, just a year after this. So, Overture L passes in 1980. The EPC starts in 1981 with its first General Assembly being held in Detroit, Michigan. And this is the northern portion of that story. What's interesting to me about this particular break with the main line is that it's not regional. Um, there were men in the south in the PCUS, this is a different denomination at this point, remember, who were also concerned but hadn't left to join the PCA. Those are the ones that I was talking about earlier. Uh, one of the men who was down there and very important that we're going to follow his story a little bit because he'll, he'll bring us nicely into the EPC is a man by the name of Andrew Jumper. Jumper is an interesting figure. And reading actually about Jumper this week helped me. I, I've had a lot of personal interactions with the EPC over the years. The first Presbyterian church I ever darkened the door of was an EPC church. And it was different than I had imagined a Presbyterian church to be, but maybe we can get there at another time. Uh, but Mr. Jumper uh, was a minister in the state of Texas. And in his early days, when he had first graduated from seminary, he was quite liberal. A matter of fact, he was a part of a faction in the Southern Presbyterian Church in the state of Texas, which was referred to as the Texas Mafia which is an interesting name for a church group. Um, so Jumper was a liberal, and he actually, in his participation with this group, helped move the, PC, the PCUS in a more liberal direction within uh, the state of Texas. He was instrumental in that. Uh, a few years past, though, 
And he's confronted with a counseling case, actually a counseling case involving a man who is struggling with the sin of homosexuality. And in the course of counseling this young man, he basically realized that he had nothing to tell him. Now, if you know the story of the neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth, this is a little bit similar. He's preaching liberalism in his church, and then all of a sudden he realizes he's not saying anything. And he realizes he's got to change his theology. Well, that happens to Andrew Jumper. So Jumper has this crisis of faith uh, that happens. And interestingly, a few weeks after he has this crisis of faith, he has another experience. He has a charismatic experience in which he believes he experiences the second blessing of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And that changes his life radically. It changes his life from being a liberal theologian to being a full-on conservative reformed theologian. And he abandons the direction that he was going, and he begins to move in a much more conservative direction, in a reformed direction, with the exception of the fact that, well, he's a charismatic because of his own personal experience, which is interesting. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing for us to wrestle with as well. I mean, you, you, you kind of have to ask the question, well, what happens to the man from our perspective? I, I, I think that it's possible that he was actually just converted for the first time, and he didn't realize that. But I, I'm not sure. You know, I can't read a man's heart, obviously. That's for the Lord to decide. But whatever happens to Mr. Jumper, it changes his life radically, and he begins to advocate for orthodoxy in the Southern Presbyterian Church. He's instrumental in founding a group called the Presbyterian Charismatic Communion. This group, alongside other groups such as the Covenant Fellowship of Presbyterians, uh, would continue to grow and influence the PCUS for their particular agendas, both in a conservative and more reformed direction, but also in a charismatic direction until after the PCA is formed, and they continue on for a number of years, but they begin to realize uh, that as the churches are going to unite, they're going to be facing the exact same issues that Mr. Hess is looking at, right? So they're going to have to deal with the fact that you've got ministers who don't believe that Jesus is God. They're going to have to deal with presbyteries and, uh, and sessions not being able to decide whether or not a woman can hold office in their own church. They're going to have to deal with presbyteries, for instance. I mean, you can think about the place this would put a minister. If I'm a minister and I don't believe a woman should be a pastor, which, by the way, I don't. <laughs> but if I, if I hold that position and I'm at presbytery, well, what am I supposed to do? Because here we have presbyters who are women. And, and it's my conviction that they shouldn't even hold office. You can see the dilemmas that this is going to put people in. And so as they look at these dilemmas, they begin to realize we got to leave. They weren't ready to leave just about 10 years earlier, 7 years earlier, actually, to form the PCA. But by this point, they're, they're realizing there's nothing we can do. Uh, we've got to go. And these men decide that the way forward is to join with these northern conservatives and go in board. Instead of joining the PCA, they want to join in with this newly formed EPC. And uh, it's an interesting way that they do this. Many of these churches, at least, well, I shouldn't say many, I know of a few, uh, actually become both members of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and the Southern Presbyterian Church, the PCUS, at the same time. And so there are churches at this period who are members of two denominations. 
they call them union churches. This had actually happened earlier, by the way, when the northern and southern churches were talking about merging. You had union presbyteries and union churches. So this isn't the first time this has ever happened, but it is, it is a strange uh, kind of episode in Presbyterian history here. But eventually these, these conservative men just break fellowship uh, with, the, with the PCUS and go into the EPC. And that's where we get... Uh, what is, I, I believe, the third or the fourth largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. Uh, smaller than the PCA, but still much larger uh, than the OPC, and that is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Okay. Now, let me say a few words about the distinctives of this church, because you might be wondering, uh, why didn't they join the PCA? Why didn't they join the OPC? You know, there were other bodies around that they might have united with at this time. And there were a few reasons for that. The major reasons that we could identify there are their perspective on women in ministry and their perspective on uh, the charismatic gifts. So the reason I, I mentioned earlier I had personal experience with the EPC and it was much different than what I thought a Presbyterian church would be like is the first Presbyterian church I ever walked into <laughs> was a very charismatic Presbyterian church. So I, I remember sitting on the front row of this church, and uh, you know, people are running by me with flags, and they're screaming. People are speaking in tongues. People are waving. Somebody pulled out a sword. That was a new experience for a Southern Baptist. I'm, I'm serious. It was a sword. I still to this day don't know if it's like a real sword or not, but it was scary. They were swinging it over their head. Anyway, um, I was not used to that. <laughs> I, I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist environment, and this was new to me. We'll put it that way. Uh, might not be new to some of you, it was new to me. Um, and it was also very counterintuitive to me that I had found myself in this situation in a church that called itself Presbyterian. I thought this was the frozen chosen. Um, it, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but the reason that I had that experience is because I had walked into an evangelical Presbyterian church. And, and these, uh, this particular brand of Presbyterianism, this particular branch of the Presbyterian Church in the United States has been heavily influenced by this charismatic revival movement that swept the Southern Presbyterian Church uh, in the 70s and in the 80s in particular. And so uh, you, can, you can find EP churches that are very, very much like, uh, like your Pentecostal church would be. On the other hand... You could find EPC churches that look a whole lot like us. Uh, matter of fact, there's a church uh, down the road from uh, where I used to live in Wilmington, Oak Island, North Carolina, uh, where uh, the ministry looks very similar to what it would look like right here. Um, very reformed. Very. Uh, the only thing that would stick out in that case would be when you looked at the session and you would notice that there were women on it. And that's the second issue uh, that the EPC... Uh, had that distinguishes it from the PCA, and that is that they believe in women's ordination. Now, they allow for diversity in this. So you can have a presbytery that doesn't believe that a woman should be a ruling elder or a teaching elder, and they can enforce that. You can have a presbytery that is fully open to having ministers, ruling elders, and deacons be women. So you, you have a great diversity of opinion on issues such as the charismatic gifts, women in ministry, and possibly other issues as well. But, but that's really what makes this a, a unique um, denomination. Now, let me say this. I, there are a lot of gospel EPC churches, right? Like, we've got we to say that. And I want to say that before I say anything negative, really, about them. Uh, there are many EP churches that, that preach the gospel. Uh, they're seeking to serve the Lord. Um, but I, I do think that these are significant 
These are significant issues. Um, and even as the EPC has continued on its life, its short life, uh, it's only been around since 1981, it has struggled a number of times to figure out how to deal with some of the issues we've already brought up. For instance, you know, what do you do when you have a denomination that allows for liberty in women's ordination when you have presbytery meetings? Again, you have a situation where men might be sitting next to a woman who's been set aside as a presbyter in the presbytery who don't even believe that she should be allowed to do that. You know, you know I mean, this is a very convoluted uh, situation that they find themselves in in many ways. Because of that, they've lost a number of churches over the years to the PCA. Um, on the other hand, the PCA and the OPC have lost churches to the EPC because the church might change its views on some of these issues and find itself out of accord with a more conservative denomination. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting church. Uh, it can be very um, diverse. Uh, that, that's what I'll say. And, um, and it's also, though, at the same time, I, I think we do have to say uh, we're glad these folks left when they did. You know, and we're glad that, that they are seeking, you know, even if we think imperfectly, uh, to, to be more in line with the Scripture and with the Reformed faith. Their motto, in some ways, sums it up really well. Their motto actually came from, from Bart Hess's personal motto. And there were people who said this before him. I'm almost certain, although the history of the EPC I read didn't, uh, didn't say that. But I'm pretty sure he didn't come up with this. But he, he had this motto of, in essentials, unity, liberty, and non-essentials, and in all things, charity. And that's, that's really their motto. And so that charity aspect is very, very important to them, and that liberty aspect is very, very important to them. Okay. That is the EPC, very quickly. Now, I want to talk very quickly about eco. Has anybody heard of eco? Okay, all right. Not eco-friendly, the church. They are probably eco-friendly, I don't know. Uh, so ECO is, is well, the, the long name for it is the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians. This is the group that left in 19, or I'm sorry, not in 19, in 2012. They left from the Presbyterian Church USA, and they left specifically over the issue of LGBTQ ordination. Uh, so these are folks who who were willing to put up with a whole lot. They weren't willing to put up with that. But they look very much like the Peace USA. They, they affirm many of the same, they, they affirmed all the confessions. So even the EPC, for instance, got rid of the Confession of 1967, which had a Unitarian bent to it and things such as this. Uh, ECO kept the Confession of 1967. Uh, it kept a number of things that were, I would say, significant problems doctrinally with the PCUSA when they left. Um, but what they did decide was a bridge too far w for them uh, was the issue of, of homosexual ordination. They were also deeply concerned, and if you actually listen to some of their material, they don't emphasize the homosexuality aspect of the split. They emphasize the decline in the PCUSA part of the split, and, and they were concerned about that. They were very concerned about the fact that the PCUSA is, is hemorrhaging members. And these were evangelical congregations, at least that's the way they saw themselves. And their concern was that if they stayed in the PCUSA, they weren't going to exist much longer. 
Because the PCUSA, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but the PCUSA loses, some people say, it loses about an OPC a year <laughs> in numbers, right? So, so it bleeds between thirty to 40,000 people every year. And it has done that for about a decade now. So that's a rapid decline, especially considering, you know, this is a little bit crass, but if I get in trouble, I'll... I'll I'll say sorry later, I guess. I, I always say that the PCUSA, you know, you can, the PCUSA's youth group starts at about 75 years old, right? I, I mean, that's, that's just the nature of the church. It, it's a church that did not keep any of its young people. It didn't keep any of them, hardly. And the reason was is because there's nothing there. They're not preaching the gospel. They're not talking about the Bible. If they're talking about anything, a lot of times it's liberal social agendas. You don't need to go to church to get that. And they've, because they're in that position, lost the vast majority of their younger members. And those who are left are often those who are loyal to particular congregations, family ties, things such as this. And ECO, the folks who started that denomination, they realized this was happening. And they didn't like it. And so that's another one of the reasons why they broke off and started a new denomination. They actually are a little bit bigger than the EPC as of today. Uh, From what I could find, at least, the EPC uh, has about 630 churches, and it's about 125,000 members. And ECO is larger. It has, now this is interesting, it has less churches. It has 383 congregations, but it has uh, 129,000 members. Now what you see in the numbers there, it might not be obvious, but um, it is the fact that when ECO left, they took many largest and some of the most prominent churches, actually, uh, in the PCUSA with them. They took some big churches when they left. And, and this split is actually very, um, if you talk to PCUSA folks, this split is very sensitive to this day because they lost, uh, they lost a lot when ECO left. Uh, they lost a lot, of, uh, a lot of influence as well. Many of their big and what was left of their growing congregations, for the most part, they left. And they went to, they went to ECA. So, that brings us really to where we, where we are today. Uh, there's one thing I want to say before I close here, which is really what marks these two churches out from all the churches that we've talked about that have come out of the main line up to this point. And that's that both of these churches explicitly tie themselves historically to the new school in American Presbyterianism. That, that's a, that was actually something of a startling fact for me as I was reading on these churches. They both explicitly look back to the new school or the old school, new school controversy and say, you know, we're not with the Charles Hodges, we're not with the, you know, the B.B. Warfields, and we're not with that crowd. We're with the new side, and the new school, rather. And in some ways, I think both of these denominations rather accurately summarize what that ethos looks like. It's an ethos that is really controlled by a desire to be broad. And we've talked about that before. We can look through American Presbyterian church history and we can see two poles, the narrow and the broad. And churches tend in some way to land on somewhere on that spectrum, right? They all are either more broad or they're more narrow. And that affects really everything about them, how they relate to the Bible, how they relate to the Westminster Confession, and how they, how they conduct themselves in their church courts and even in their local congregations. 
I think, again, we see that theme running through, and we see really where that, well, where that resulted. (laughs) And it results in the splinters, all the various churches that we have, all the various denominations we have, all the various flavors that we have today of American Presbyterianism. Okay. It's also time for folks to pick up their children, I believe. So, go ahead. Urban, urbanization, yeah, and, and versus rural. I, I think regionally, I, I think region regions are very important. I, I'm not sure about the rural rural urban divide. I, w- I would have to think about that a little bit. You know, so there are churches that are very similar. We could take the ARP, for instance, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church today in the OPC. Similar size, similar theologically, very different culturally. And that's related mostly to the regionality of the ARP. The ARP is a basically a Carolinian denomination. It exists mostly in North and South Carolina. Um, and it exists in rural areas. Theologically, it's very similar. Um, but anyway, I mean, it does account for characteristic differences, I think. Uh, you know, um, but I, I, don't, I don't know when we're talking about the kind of liberal versus conservative divide. I think typically people who live in rural areas tend to be conservative, but simultaneously people who live in rural areas and Presbyterian churches tend to be very badly informed. So that's why the majority of, of churches that you run into in rural North Carolina are still PCUSA churches, right? Um, but, you know, you still see PCA churches out there. Uh, ARP churches obviously were never part of the main line, but... Uh, and EP churches that, that, that did leave. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't think you could probably draw that very sharply. Uh, much of the divisions that took place in American Presbyterianism took place before the political divisions that we see today with urbanization. And I, that would be my suspicion, at least to where they are at this point, you know, the heightened level of division. Okay. All right. Well, let's pray. And then if anybody wants to talk, we can, we can do that um, privately. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, O Lord, that you have blessed your church, that you have guided your church, that you have sent your spirit to your church to guide her in all truth. We pray, O Lord, even as we consider men and women that we have disagreements with, and yet recognize, Father, that they are gospel-believing Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father both for they as well as for us, that you would lead us by your Spirit into a greater degree of truth. We pray, Father, even now for these denominations that we've been speaking about this morning. We ask, O Lord, that you would increase their faithfulness to the biblical text of Scripture, that you would also uh, guide them, O Lord, uh, into a more willing submission to the words of your Holy Scripture so that they might walk faithfully in the future. And we do pray that for all of us, Lord, that you would reform us from an individual level to a congregational level to a presbytery level to a denominational level, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would give us more zeal and faithfulness for Jesus, and that you would help us, O Lord, to live in a way that would glorify you in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.